Hi, my name is Raven Dowda. I play Dr. Tracy Pollard on Star Trek Discovery, and you are watching Trek Untold. Hello and welcome to Trek Untold, the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. And more importantly, welcome back to what is essentially Season 2 of the Trek Untold podcast. As you regular listeners know, I posted an episode about six weeks ago explaining that I wanted to take a little bit of a summer vacation, and that summer vacation kind of extended itself another extra week or two, uh, because I ended up working on another video for my channel, which took a lot of time and a lot of energy. Uh, and if you guys want to check that out, it's actually a video titled How Comic Books Reacted to 9-11, which is a look at the 20-year history of comic books and all the different types of comics and how different artists responded and reacted to the events from September 11, 2001 using their art. As you can imagine, that was not an easy video to make, uh, and neither was having to binge so many of those comics one after another. Uh, a lot of them were pretty darn depressing, so I kind of needed some more mental time to get myself ready. But if you do want to check out that video, we are going to have a link for it in the show notes. So please, I urge you to take a look at that, something that interests you. But do you remember that viewer discretion is advised for that video? And we do talk about some sensitive topics in that one, along with some sensitive imagery that might upset some viewers. So let's meet who our first guest back to this vacation is going to be. And for that, we're taking a trip to sickbay. The role of the Doctor on a Star Trek show is one that comes under a lot of scrutiny from fans. If you ask somebody which Doctor they would want on their starship, it will probably turn into a more heated debate than the age-old Kirk versus Picard argument. And if you mention Dr. Pulaski in the same sentence as Dr. Crusher, fistfights will break out. That is a guarantee. On today's episode, we're taking a shuttlecraft up to the NCC 1031 to meet another member of Discovery's crew. Raven Dowda plays Dr. Tracy Pollard in the series, the physician who briefly replaced Dr. Culber while he was temporarily dead, because Wilson Cruz's character was stuck in the mycelial network, and uh, don't think too hard about it, it's just a mushroom thing. Raven has so far appeared in one dozen episodes of Discovery, across all three seasons to date, and she will be likely back for season four and beyond. With nearly 100 on-screen credits under her belt, not counting her theatrical work, chances are you've seen Raven in something besides Discovery. Outside of those Starfleet-issued medical scrubs, you've seen Raven in countless productions in her home country of Canada, and plenty in Hollywood, too. Some of these roles include appearances in Murder at 1600, Soul Food, Odyssey 5, Bulletproof Monk, Paradise Falls, Across the River to Motor City, The Kink in My Hair, Crash and Burn, Orphan Black, Heroes Reborn, Mary Kills People, Designated Survivor, Saving Hope, Falling Water, The Expanse, Murdoch Mysteries, The Umbrella Academy, and much more. Oh, and if you got kids at home as well, you may have heard her voice in the new Clifford the Big Red Dog animated series on PBS. Raven is also one of those guests who is filled to the brim with positivity and energy and lights up a room with her personality. She made this interview so easy to do because she was so generous and so open, where usually I have to make the guests feel super safe and at home. In this case around, it was actually Raven who made me feel that way, and we had a great chat here about her life and her career that I think you're going to really, really enjoy. But before we begin this week's episode, I want to remind you about the different ways that you can support Trek Untold. If you're in a position to help us financially, we have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash trekuntold, where you can support us for as little as $2 a month. Joining at higher levels allows you to have early access to the latest episodes, knowing in advance who our guests will be before anybody else finds out, 
or even the chance to submit questions to some of those future guests, and maybe your question might be heard on that episode. Shout out to our sponsor, Triple Fiction Productions, who create 3D printed toys and prop replicas inspired by Star Trek. Their items come in all shapes and all sizes and are always amazing, but you're going to hear a little bit more about them later on in the show. But most importantly, I need you to leave a review and rating on iTunes or wherever you're listening to Trek Untold. Five-star ratings and positive reviews help this show pop up when new listeners search for Star Trek podcasts and make sure that they know they're listening to something that is worth their time. If you're watching this episode in video format on YouTube, please leave a thumbs up, share the video, and of course, comment there as well. Interacting on all these platforms is a guaranteed way to spread the word about Trek Untold. So if you've been a fan of this show, please do take action in whatever way you can and help make sure that Trek Untold can reach more listeners just like you who are going to love this type of content. And don't forget to follow us on our social media pages, which includes Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. All you need to do is type in at Trek Untold on any of those platforms, search for us that way, and you will find us just like that. You can also watch the video version of this episode on our YouTube channel, which you can subscribe to at youtube.com slash nerdnewstoday. The video versions are released on Sundays, so the audio version will always come first, but if you prefer watching it, that's the way to do it. We also do a lot of other Trek-related content there, including toy and book reviews and plenty of other stuff, so you might want to take a look too, just so you can indulge and get yourself a new daily dose of Trek nerddom, however way you like to get it. Now, without further ado, let's bring in this week's guest and get this episode started. Computer, beam in this week's guest. Hello and welcome back to Trek Untold. And now joining us on the other side of the screen, we have an actress who you've seen in many things and a lot of things you probably haven't seen. A lot of them has been only over in Canada, but we're going to talk all about that today. And of course, plenty of Star Trek Discovery discussion, and that is Miss Raven Dowda. Raven, how are you today? Hi, I am great. Thank you. Thank you, Matthew, so much for having me on this show. Yeah, it's so great to chat with you because, you know, as we were talking off camera before we started recording this, there aren't like a ton of interviews out there with you. So, like, I'm really intrigued to find out more about your story and who you are. Yeah, I'm a, li- I'm a little bit mysterious. I ain't going to lie. Um, I'm, I'm quite a shy person, actually. And so uh, I've been learning more and more because, you know, the fans and people, they just want to they just want to get to know me. So I'm learning. I am a very, I'd like to say, an introverted extrovert if that makes sense. Uh, so yeah, so I'm really honored to be here. Thanks for reaching out. And, uh, and I'll try to uh, not uh, trip up. <laughs> I'm sure it'll be fine. It's me who's gonna be messing up every two minutes. Don't worry. That's why I ask you the questions. I just sit back and watch. Oh, I see. Smart. Very That's smart. the trick to being a good interviewer. Don't talk. <laughs> Let's go ahead and jump right on in here. And my first question for you, Raven, is what's your earliest memory of Star Trek? Oh my goodness. Okay. My earliest memory. And this is the thing, like we grew up on Star Trek. Um, I grew up with it being in the house and that my mom loves, 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 loves Star Trek. And it was like our special time. Like we have just TV time where, you know, you curl up on the couch and you watch Star Trek. And so I remember like the first, the first episodes. And um, I think I mean, I remember having a little crush on Captain Pike because he was just so, so cute. Um, but it's, it's always been, you know, Kirk and Spock and, and uh, the fights and, and just like them going back in time and stuff. So my earliest memory, though, is just cuddling up on a couch with my mom watching Star Trek. That's great. It's so funny you mentioned Jeffrey Hunter, too, because he's, you know, barely talked about in the Star Trek world, despite him being part of the original pilot. I mean, they know that. But beyond that, his career has been amazing, too. Yeah. Yeah. So and it's so funny because like Star Trek was always around, but 
I'm not in by any ways like a real Trekkie. Like I, I admire people and the fans who just like, they know it, they're on it. Like, they, like I'm always amazed at that. So for myself, it's just been um, fantasy entertainment. And I love, I love what Roddenberry set in motion and what it stands for, like that whole coming together as different and as diverse as we are and all these different, they have these species and everything. It's like that whole idea of being one despite our differences, that always spoke to me because it allowed, it, it made space for me. It made me go like as freaky as I am, I too belong in this world, you know? So there was something right from the beginning that I, I identified with in Star Trek. So let's jump into a little bit about the secret origin story of Raven Dowda, because uh, this is part I especially don't know about your enigmatic past, if you will. I make it sound all mysterious right now, but uh, <laughs> now, can you tell us a little bit about where you grew up, who your parents were, and what they did, and what little Raven wanted to be when she grew up? Well, oh my goodness. We call this being in the hot seat. Oh, yeah. When, when you get in your questions asked. Or turn the temperature up. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yes, I grew up in Ottawa, Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. And um, I'm not going to say when. No dates are going to be described. Um, but yes, I grew up. Um, my parents are Lucille and Dowda and my father, who's now passed, um, Jack Dowda. Um, quiet, you know, family. I have a couple of other siblings, two sisters and a brother. And, you know, growing up in Ottawa, it was a time when there wasn't that much diversity, like just to be real frank. There was one other black family that I knew of. <laughs> and um, it was uh, a beautiful place. Ottawa, I always say, is a place where, you know, it's a great place to, to raise kids. It's pretty and to live. But it was very much a small town for myself growing up. And I felt very isolated because we were really the only black family. And so there wasn't much community for myself. And so I found that growing up, uh, I was to myself and, uh, you know, I lived in a neighborhood where I became fast friends with the kids there. We all kind of went to the same school and, you know, after school, we would go to one of their homes and, you know, hang out and wait until the rest of our parents came home and then we'd like go to dinner. Or whatnot. Um, but yeah, very, I felt like my life was kind of um, insulated, you know? And um, so, yeah, growing up, hanging out with the other kids on the street, what we would do to pass time while we're waiting for the femme, you know, to get off work, uh, was we'd create our own shows. Like we would do little magic shows, little magic tricks or little plays. We'd put on, you know, albums and dance to them and do dress up. And so we'd create the <laughs> these things for when the parents came home, we'd do this show. And that always stuck with me. I just feel like from the moment that I was born, because I felt like I didn't really belong in this 3D world, my imaginary make-believe world was so rich. And I had friends that um, also felt that way or would join in in creating these little worlds. So I, I feel like definitely in my blood was being an actor or was being a creative being from the get-go. And I mean, to this day, I remember some of the things that we did and just fondly, fondly, that those formative years, 
helped to develop me into the artist and the person that I am today. And by the way, I have to mention, I love the name Raven. Uh, besides being my favorite Teen Titan, uh, it's just such a great name. There's got to be a story behind that. I, I'd love to hear, is there a story behind that name? You know, there is a story behind that name. And I'm wondering, you know, how much of that story to share. But um, I, 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 too, identified with the character of Raven in the Teen Titans. Like, I mean, I collected those comics. I still have those comics. And back in the day, because they weren't popular, all right? Nobody liked the Teen Titans, okay? And I had them. Everybody's all about Spider-Man. I'm not hating about Spider-Man or anything, or, you know, Wolverine and the X-Men. I'm not hating on any of those. Those guys are awesome. But, like, Teen Titans was just in the corner. Nobody would want those comics. And they, they provided, once again, a wonderful window of escape for me in growing up. I really identified with the Raven character. She's this empath. And I'm like... Too. Oh my goodness, I feel emotions, <laughs> you know. Um, and um, I loved how they, you know, what they represented. They were in some ways a lot of the sidekicks of the other big, the bigger, the bigger superheroes. And so I just loved that they found their own place and came into their own and battled their own demons and were a very formidable group, you know, led by Robin, Nightwing. Like they were like Teen Titans. Anyways. Enough about Teen Titans. This ain't the Teen Titans show. Um, <laughs> That's a different podcast entirely. <laughs> totally different podcast. But yeah, my my um, my name is is something that I take great pride in as a kid growing up. And this is the thing. I'm going to share part of the story, and I'm going to be a bit of a tease. <laughs> Sorry, viewers, but this is what you get. You turned in and this is what you get. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I did change my name. Mm -hmm. When I was very young, um, I, was, I was like 10-ish, I think. And I went to my mom and God bless my mom. She's so wonderful. She supports me in everything I do to this day. She's been my biggest cheerleader. I love her. And... Um, so this little kid goes up to her, mom, mom, I want to change my name to Raven. And she was like, not to crush my dream. She was like, okay, um, how about you go to school and you tell your friends to call you that. We'll try it out for a year. And if it sticks, then we'll change it legally. And sure enough, man, I did. I was just like, everybody, you got to call me Raven. Um, the reason why I love that name so much is that uh, I, I was so taken by Edgar Allan Poe. That's the first one, the poem, right? We know the raven. Um, and also mystical things. And I'd read books or whenever you saw a witch or a warlock or something, on their shoulder would be the raven. The raven was like this power source. Um, so that always intrigued me. And then I'd look at things like in Inuit legend and in native lore, the raven being the trickster. Uh, the raven stole the sun. The raven created the universe in Inuit legends. There's so much power to this being. And then I, and then the, the hole just kept getting bigger. You know, I'd be reading about ravens and seeing how intelligent they are and what they can do. And so, and teaching them to talk. Like I was like, I was convinced when I was a little kid that I was going to have a pet raven and I was going to call it Lenore and I was going to teach it to talk, <laughs> you know? So I had this imagination and I have strong affinity with that bird and and sure enough i mean to the day i went to my mom and she was like sure you can change it and we did i did keep my birth name as a middle name 
but I'm still not going to share what that first name is. That's the tease. <laughs> All right. Uh, what if I cast a spell here to get it from you? Azeroth, Mentrion, Zinthos. Is that working? <laughs> nice to try. <laughs> yeah, the name has been uh, saved to protect the innocent. Um, but yeah. We'll leave it at oh, that then. It's, 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 it's something that I feel is so important. I've been learning that how um, in certain cultures, you know, the child adopts their own name. They go out and it's sort of like a rite of passage. And then you, you, you claim who you are. And, and also, you know, I've been around a lot of circles with people that have different spiritualities and different practices. And um, some believe that a spirit animal chooses them. And so some of my friends do believe that, you know, yes, I'm called the Raven, but that's my spirit animal. And it, it chose me at a young age. And so now this is who I am. This is. All right. Very interesting. Very good story, too. I, I'm, one day we'll get the full story out of you. We'll, yeah. I'm going to keep crying one day. <laughs> Stay tuned. I'll let people talk about that. <laughs> Someone from my past will be like, I know what her name is. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, at the point that the acting bug bit you, uh, did you decide to then go to acting school to continue to pursue this craft? Yeah, yeah, I did. I did. And it's so funny. I'll share one other little story before that happened. Um, I was in grade school and a play came about. um, It was Cinderella was the school play. And we were like little kids. We were like grade, you know, five, six type of thing. And of course, everybody wanted to be Cinderella. I wanted to be Cinderella. I didn't get cast as Cinderella. I got cast as the ugly stepsister. Me, I I was crushed, but I was de- I was determined to make the 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 career of a lifetime the chosen role, and um yeah yeah that's really what what infor- like uh, bit me as they say the bug bit me as to be an actor, um, and so from there yes I uh, I went to school um, intermediate school I was always doing like talent shows and stuff like that um, anything to like showcase talent and get to know about it um and eventually i i um did a play in high school and it was part of this thing called the sears drama festival so up here in ontario we have this huge festival at that time it was sponsored by sears um and it was incredible it was sort of like you know if american idol was a play it was about plays schools from all over the district would do these one hand these one act plays like less than an hour and it could be you know two-handers, like two people in the show, or even a cast of how many, you know, they have in their, in their drama department. Um, and so I did a play called Penguin Blues. And um, I was 16, you know, this was a play that was very mature, but it, it's also like all student run. So like it was student director. Y- yes, you have your drama teachers that are advisors and all that, but it's like, you know, student director and student stage manager and really allows the kids to learn about what it is to, you know, put on a show. And um, yeah, this play called Penguin Blues was about a nun and a voiceover artist in an alcoholic rehabilitation center. It was so intense. And once again, I mean, my life growing up, everybody has problems. And so my life growing up wasn't always roses. And I struggled a lot. I struggled with a lot of things. and. Uh, the acting really allowed me as a form of escape and we're sensing a theme here, right? As a form of escape and as a way to express myself and, and actually come to terms with 
what I was feeling and give me a, a, an outlet, a creative outlet. So this play, as challenging as it was, because it looked at abuse, it looked at abuse of the kids, like the nuns beating kids. It looked at, you know, alcoholism. It, it looked at so many things. And we were like, these two 16-year-olds doing it. One of the kids is smoking. Like, it was just like, it was crazy. Um, and I was so good at it. It was the first time, Matthew, in my life when I did something that I was like, I know this. I belong here. I, I'm here on this earth to help tell people stories for healing or for movement or for awareness. And it was so wonderful to feel like for the first time I belong. So... Yeah, so that play, we did well. We cleaned up. We got all kinds of awards. I was like, this is it. I was like, you know, anyways. Um, and that introduced me to a school called the Etobicoke School of the Arts. Uh, once again, another high school. So much we were like, it's like fame. It wasn't like fame. <laughs> Nobody was breaking out into dances on the, in, in the halls. It was not like fame. But because and did you even go to a drama school if no one's just breaking out into random musical numbers? This, this is it. I was in the cafeteria. Like, when's somebody gonna start? When are we gonna start doing the same dance? I'm gonna live forever. Exactly right. There was no Miss Debbie Allen stamping the cane saying that fame costs. <laughs> well, you might not be missing much if you don't have Debbie Allen there. That's probably for the best. I mean, we've heard stories about her. Right. But I do admire the school because you had to you had to do right with your braids. You had to do, you could not have like grades dipping or anything. You wouldn't be in any shows. Like they were very, very much about supporting education first and, and obviously nurturing our talents. And like, th there was no excuses. Like you had all your assignments and it was a wonderful place where I still have dear friends to this day who are in the biz that I, I see. Um, so yeah, so that was my, training ground and then I went eventually to a university um, a college out in Vancouver uh, called Studio 58 and uh, I went there for a little while never actually really technically graduated I just came back to Toronto and started working I was I was one of those that kind of very blessed and hit the ground running um, and I a part of me has always wanted to go back to university or college and be like you know how Aretha Franklin, like she went to Juilliard later on in her career. I always wondered about that. Like, can you imagine sitting in school in class and you look over to your side and there's like the Queen of Soul <laughs> taking making theory with you? Anyways, um, yeah, uh, uh, that's kind of where my my schooling went, and then I learned mostly from being on set or being in theater. Like, you just learn as you go. Um, but maybe one day I will be like, God rest their soul, Miss Aretha and, and uh, Juilliard, if you're listening and you're like accepting me for one of your summer programs. I'd love that. Um, <laughs> you never know. You never know. Learning keeps going. The learning keeps going. So according to IMDb, and uh, I believe this is accurate, I think your first professional gig on a film or TV show was Murder at 1600, correct? Yes. And that's yes, a Wesley Snipes, so I, I have to ask you about Wesley. I love Mr. Wesley Snipes. Oh, my goodness. I don't know. Did you see that coming to America, that second one that came out? I haven't seen it yet, no. 
good times, man. I know there are a lot of people hating on it and stuff and it coming out and everything, but I loved it. I thought it was a good family fun thing. And Mr. Wesley Snipes just turned it up. So big shout out to you, Wesley. It was so great seeing you back on the screen and coming out in that glorious way. So just got to say that. Um, but yes, Murder at 1600. Here I am, a waitress in Toronto. I get this gig. So excited. Wonderful people. The producers, everybody, they're wonderful. I happened to work at this, at that time, I worked at this restaurant called Yoso's in Avenue and Davenport. And it's in this area of town where it's like near the Four Seasons and all the celebrities come and have dinner. And it was incredible. Owned by a beautiful family who's artistic in their own right. The owner, um, he's passed now, but at the time, he, when he had started up, sorry, he had a show like on CBC, like a, um, a folk song variety show um, with his singing partner, Malka, I should say. And um, so he was very familiar in just in the industry and, and having, he knew so many people. He knew people like Dali and Picasso. Like he just, yeah. So at Yoso's, I would meet sometimes these people that were I'd be working with eventually, right? Um, and so when Murder at 1600 came around, I was the classic actor being a waitress. And then I got this job, which was playing a waitress, very meta. But I was so excited. Matthew, this job meant so much to me. I had one line originally, which was, get you something. <laughs> get you something. By the time I got the script, and scripts always go through rewrites, it had been cut to coffee. <laughs> just the word coffee. Don't you know, Miss Raven was practicing up and down in her apartment. Coffee? Coffee. Coffee. Coffee? My brother still makes fun of me to this day. And that's how much that role meant to me. It started everything off. It, it was wonderful. I remember seeing it in the theater, my head on the big screen. Um, it, it, that's where it all began. And I hold it in my heart so dearly. Such a good time. And you were really working the Meisner method there to get that coffee to sound oh, right, it sounds like. I did. I did. Like I said, to this day, my brother's still like, coffee? Coffee? <laughs> 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 you got to make the most of everything. I'm sorry. As an actor, man, you work it. You work that ish, man. You work it. <laughs> now, I'd like to ask you a little bit also about another, I think, very important TV series to your career, and that was To Kink in My Hair. Uh, yes. Where you played Lara, and uh, I found a great video of you talking about one of your mentors, also who was the writer of that show, Trey Anthony. Uh, she's yeah. written many, many plays, many TV shows. Uh, a very influential playwright and, and author. Yes. And we talked about someone's work before, actually. I believe someone else we spoke to on the show actually was in a production of *The Kink in My Hair*, the stage version. Um, so, so I'd love to actually hear a little bit about your experiences uh, working yeah. on that, and uh, and also just if you can tell us a little bit about Trey Anthony and how important she's been to your life and your work. You know, *The Kink in My Hair*. It, it, revolutionized everything for me as far as understanding what the power of theater is. Before that, yes, I had known how influential theater was, but I really saw it as, you know, we go into a theater and the audience sits back and watches a show, is entertained, and then we leave. With the kink, it really showed me how the origins of storytelling are still in play right now, how we actually need them, how theater is a communal environment. And so the audience is an active part of it. Not that they have to be, you know, up and, and jumping up with us sometimes. You know, yes, they, they were. They were very vocal and they talked back. Um, actually, a, a fun, fun fact is before we started every show, when we did the Princess of Wales run, 
uh, you know, we have our circle and we say our prayers and all, but the end Trey would say, um, talk to them, listen to them, heal them, kink. And so we'd be in a circle and we'd say, talk to them, talk to them. And it's the audience really actually talk to them, not at them. We're, we're having a, a conversation here. Listen to them, listen to how they're reacting to what we're saying, listen to how they're feeling about what we're sharing, you know? And then heal them because the stories that Trey was sharing that we were telling were like, we looked at everything. We looked at, you know, racism, shadism, you know, gang violence, um, abuse, emotional abuse, physical abuse and molestation. We looked at like everything. And it was what we were doing was creating an environment so that the audience could heal as well cathartically in a way in a safe space right and to get that discussion going and so it was the first time excuse me when I did a show where like we were getting letters and people would come up to me afterwards and just be like because my character was a um, a gay woman who came out and when she came out her mother totally disowned her and just people turned on her (coughs) excuse me and I had people come up to me that this is their life, you know? And I said that to Trey, I said, because sometimes the show got really, really intense in that um, just like, <laughs> just like true to form, how it happens for so many, when I was playing this role and telling the story in the beginning of the story, the audience is along for the ride and the character's very charismatic. Trey wrote her beautifully. Um, the character's making jokes and everybody really attaches to her. And then partway through the monologue, she comes out as being gay. And as soon as that happens, especially in the Princess of Wales run, the audience turned. And the people that had issues, that were homophobic, that had serious issues, they let it be known. Because also they're in the theater and there's a bit of darkness there. So you're protected. You know what I mean? In a way, they have that anonymity to let out their disgust or hatred or disapproval, what have you. Um, and it, it, it got really intense sometimes in the fact that, you know, people would not that, you know, it's like, ah, oh, we're going to start a riot, but you could feel the visceral hatred. And, and I said to Trey, you know, cause she was concerned at one time and allowed me thankfully, uh, that I could address it in the monologue you know I wouldn't go off 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 script but I could definitely address what was coming up um and I said to her you know I I can actually with some difficulty but I can take this off at the end of the day this is a character that I am stepping into there are many that know this is their life you know and I felt so honored being able to be of service as a mouthpiece to help tell these stories because they, they obviously needed to be told. Um, so yeah, yeah. The kink in my hair really flipped the script for me as they say, as to the power of what theater can do and its place in our world. Um, not to discredit any other form of theater, whether it's, you know, entertainment and what have you, but I feel like it doesn't, it doesn't have to be exclusive. You can have extreme entertainment and also at the same time have a 
deep, deep, deep healing work going on um, and open the doors for communication and change because we need that. And we see it happening in the world now. We see all the movements happening um, that are supported by things like the arts that get the conversation going or that have people in the artistic field leading that forefront, right? That are speaking up against, you know, what is, um, what is wrong or that needs to be changed in the world. So, yeah. That was a really long way to answer that. I don't know if I answered any of them. <laughs> uh, I think you did. You told a great story about that. And, uh, you know, I think it's important to note, too, is just how different this is in the world of theater, because this is basically a show for people of color, by people of color, with people of color. Yes. And, and so I'm really curious, too, like, you know, how was this received where you were doing the show? I mean, what kind of oh, audience were you getting? It was crazy. First of all, this was when we did it at Princess of Wales, I believe it was 2005. And it was the first time in... Canada, Toronto, Canada, that a show, a Canadian show, was on the stage at the Princess of Wales Theatre, which we found outrageous. Like, we're like, what? (laughs) Because there's so much talent. Canadian stories matter as well, (laughs) you know? And But there's something about always having, you know, shows um, flown in and doing shows from the States once they hit big or from England once they hit big. Let's bring Lord of the Rings. Let's bring, you know... And no, nothing to say against those shows, but it's just, I think we do a great disservice to ourselves as Canadian when we import things without even just looking at what we have right here (laughs) in our own backyard. Um, So uh, the kink in my hair was breaking all kinds of records, box office records. Uh, First of all, yes, communities of color were coming out in droves, in droves. People have never seen that before. They're like, (laughs) black people coming out to plays? what (laughs) and it's like yeah you give people something that they want to see and they'll come out and see it they'll come out from everywhere and so the play yeah once again I mean the play was done in so many different versions but I'm just speaking about the Princess of Wales one at this time um I think it started like let's say it started in January or something and in February and then it kept getting extended to March, to April, like it just kept going on and on and on and on and on. It was crazy. The only reason why it stopped in the end was that there was another show that they had eventually booked, um, but it just kept getting extended. And it was it was so remarkable um, because there was such a need for it. And yes, it was a black show told by black women. You never see that at that time, especially too, and women of all shades and just like, all from the African diaspora and Caribbean. Like it was just all kinds of women um, telling this story. Um, And even though it was from that perspective, because of its specificity, it reached out to everyone. So we had people that like, you know, like Filipino women, like that's us, that's our mothers, you know? Like we had like everyone, like people like some Asian women would come by and just be like, oh my goodness, the hair thing or the shadism or the, as specific as it was for us, it reached out, which was the real crazy thing about it, the crazy, beautiful thing about it. Um, and, a, and a great reminder as to how we all are very similar in our differences. Like, it was just amazing. Um, so, yeah, it broke a lot of records and just um, showed, I think it made a lot of people aware who weren't necessarily aware, like, let's speak about producers and what have you at that time, that didn't think necessarily that the Black voice could be profitable that was a very interesting thing and also like the hamilton phenomena exactly and that things can be told in a different way stories can be told in a different way we went in because we like to see who we're talking to our audience we were like trey was like raise the the house lights so that we can see the audience and they're like what nobody does that that's rare that's rare to do that's rare we actually want to look at the people that we're talking 
talking to. We actually want to have a relationship, a meaningful relationship in this time. If they're giving up their time and we're giving up our time in this space, let's really make it something. So it's just, it just let me know that, that things can be done in a different way. Um, Cause Trey, part of Trey's legacy, I, I keep bigging her up and how she changed my life was in telling your own story because she wasn't getting any work or nothing. She like before the kink, she got a lot of no's, you know, like a lot of no, because you're too this, you're too that, you're too, all the things that we hear that are from somebody else's perspective, from the norm of what we see in this entertainment industry. So if you don't fit that box, we'll forget it. And Trey was like, well, I'm not gonna forget. I'm gonna write my own thing. I'm gonna make myself my own star because that's what I am. And sure enough, sure enough. So it just reminds me, and I say that to people if ever I'm, I used to teach as well, um, some acting courses. And uh, I'd always say to young students, just don't wait, don't wait on the story. Don't wait on the work. You got a cell phone, <laughs> you got an iPhone or something. You got a friend, write some stuff down and film it if you want, like create your own work. And we see now, especially in today's time with YouTube and all that stuff, there's no excuse. You make your own work. You make your own work because sometimes people aren't imaginative enough and we don't know what we like until we see it. We don't know what's necessary because it's not from our perspective. If it is coming to you, if it's something that you really want to see or do or feel, that's why it's coming to you. You are the one to do it. You are the one to create it and put it out there. And then the rest of us will, will jump on board and say, ah, yes, great idea. I knew that person when... <laughs> Uh, great answer. Great answer. So Thank let's you. go from the kink of my hair to the hair salon, because I got to talk about the Umbrella Academy, because I, I, I was a fan of the Umbrella Academy. and I didn't realize you were in it until I looked back and I was like, oh, she's Odessa. You're Odessa from season two. You're on the hair salon. I love your introduction, by the way, into the series where you pull the the, uh, the razor. Yeah, right. I love they add that little sound effect of the switch. Like, Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. My little Edward's hand moment where I'm just like. Odessa will cut a bitch. I'm sorry. <laughs> you you do not want to cross Odessa. <laughs> oh, she's, a, she's an amazing character. And you got to work with Amy Raver Lampman, uh, Yusuf Gatewood, uh, and just everybody else in the cast too. But such a great show, such a great cast. I'd love to hear some stories that you got from the Umbrella Academy. Oh my goodness. Well, Umbrella Academy came along and it was one of those auditions, those rare auditions where it just clicked right away. Like I knew this woman. I wasn't like scared about, oh, how, like she just came in and that was so joyous. And then to be received and supported by the producers and the director, like everyone on that show works at such a caliber that I, I admire. And um, yeah, working with Emmy and everyone, like they're just like amazing people. And so Odessa, I love this. First of all, just a side note, I just love how the roles that I get to play, like I look very different in all of them. And that's helped me with my anonymity a little bit. Like that's helped me because like a lot of people don't know that I've been in this biz for a minute, as they say. I, I This ain't my first rodeo show. And I look real good. I got my mama's skin. So, <laughs> you know, but I've been in it for a while. And I love the fact that these characters come along in Odessa was the perfect one in that that 60s period piece and the hair and the wardrobe and everything like they 
did that to the nines. They were meticulous in how its accuracy was. Um, and so that was a real joy to be a part of a show in, in that way. Um, and to help tell the stories of this time and the sit-ins. And I mean, like, oh my goodness, the eerie thing was, you know, is how, how far have we really come? Like we're telling a story where they're back in time, but really it could be now. Um, there was something very saddening and, and, and um, just disappointing about that. Um, but also it reinforced the urgency and the necessity of, of telling this story as well. Um, so a part of me felt once again, really proud to be, to be in that, to be in that environment and to also just uh, geek out and sit back and watch like, I'm like, Oh my God, there they are. You know? And, and even though I didn't have any scenes with the other, the other, <laughs> the other ones, um, I, I still got to see them and just geek out and be like, I really love you. <laughs> Robert, you're amazing. Oh my God. <laughs> Can I give you a hug? <laughs> Elliot, you're the best. Oh my goodness. I just want to, <laughs> you know, like so much, so much, so much love and respect to all of them. And I'm, I'm so proud of the, the, the success that they're receiving. And, um, and I love that it's a show that is filmed here and gets to utilize and showcase many talents that are Canadian or that we adopt as Canadian. Sometimes, um, uh, Colm, I'm thinking of, he's, cause he's American, but we adopt him, we adopted him, right, as Canadian. So, um, cause a lot of people think he's Canadian. And then I looked it up, I'm like, yeah, he's Canadian, he's Canadian. And then I looked up, I'm like, oh no, he's not. Um, but I digress. The point being that um, Umbrella Academy is just, yeah, it was, it's, it's a highlight. It's a highlight on my reel and yeah. Yeah, I wish them all the best. Yeah. Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is brought to you by Triple Fiction Productions. If you're a Star Trek cosplayer looking for props or toy collector looking to spice up your shelves, Triple Fiction Productions has you covered. Triple Fiction Productions produces affordable and unique 3D printed Trek inspired products from the original series Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, and the movies. You can expect the same amount of care and attention to detail in any of the items in their catalog, whether it's a prop replica for use in a fan film, or part of a cosplay, or accessories and playsets for figures from Playmates, Migos, or Diamond Select. Own your very own tricorder or phaser rifle with working lights, the bridge of the Enterprise E for your Playmates figures, or any other item from countless species and ships from the Star Trek universe. All products are 3D printed in the USA and are constantly evolving and improving based on fan feedback. To learn more about their products, visit them at triple-fictionproductions.net or on Facebook at facebook.com slash triplefictionproductions. Triple Fiction Productions, taking Star Trek where no 3D printer has gone before. Hi, I'm Armin Schimmelman. And I'm Kitty Swank. 17 years ago, I was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. I didn't know it at the time, but I had a 4% chance of surviving five years. As her husband, I was very scared. But he never let me see that. You are a rock. Thank you. Thank you. Pancreatic cancer is the third leading cause of cancer-related deaths in the United States, with a five-year survival rate of just 10%. We want it to be much higher. Much higher. It's 6% better when I was diagnosed, but not high enough. 
More than 60,000 Americans are estimated to be diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in 2021, and more than 48,000 will die from the disease. Because symptoms are often vague, it can be hard to detect. Like the rest of the world, the Star Trek universe has been struck repeatedly by pancreatic cancer. Not only those of us that work on the show, but our fans around the world as well. It is why we came together with so many others to work with the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network, the leading patient advocates committed to fighting the world's toughest cancer. PanCan is working hard to create better outcomes for this devastating disease through its groundbreaking research and early detection and better treatment options. PanCan drives progress by funding life-saving research, providing personalized patient services, and creating a community of supporters and volunteers who will stop at nothing to create a world in which all pancreatic cancer patients will thrive. You can help support their important mission by donating at pancan.org today. We donated. Won't you do so too? Please, make it so. We now return to Trek Untold. So, Raven, let's beam into our Star Trek discussion. And, of course, you are Dr. Tracy Pollard on Star Trek Discovery. So, you know, the one thing we've learned from doing this show with so many different guests who have been on Disco is that uh, they don't usually know they're auditioning for Disco. So uh, can you kind of tell us what was your audition process like for the show? You know, um, yeah, because they have code names and everything. So you don't necessarily know. But when I auditioned for them, I did know because my agent was like, it's code name this but it's really Star Trek and um, very secretive. And, and there was something that was so exciting about that. Like there was something that was so cool about like you get the sides, what they call the audition material, but it's like on a time sensitive thing link. And then once you get that, then it, it disappears. Like this message will self this drug, you know, and you can't copy it in any way. It's all protected and encrypted and all that shit. So it's just like, so amazing um because you see how you're a part of something that is so much bigger than you um so I knew going in I first auditioned for though because I auditioned a few times um I think the first time I auditioned was for a Klingon ambassador like one of the yeah I think I'm drawing a blank then the second time, I think, was one of, not one of the bridge crew. I'm drawing a blank now. Isn't that something? But the third time is when I auditioned was for Dr. Pollard. The cool thing was, like, everything was disguised. Like, you don't know. You just, you're, you're, a, you're reading um, a part, and there are other characters, obviously, in the scene. But I didn't know that it was, like, Saru or who. Like, you don't know. It's all very, very cloak and dagger. Um, and I found that quite liberating because then at the end of the day, I made it about who's in the scene, what is my role as doctor, and then I endowed them, the others in the scene, with backstory as to how important they are to me. So it, it, you just do your homework as an actor and you lift it up off the page. Um, and so without the added pressure of knowing exactly, like if I had known, oh my goodness, this is, you know, Burnham and this is Saru if I'd known that those were the people um I think it would have choked me up a bit I think it would have just gotten into my head and mind death me you know like so I, I hats off to how they're doing it because they're respecting obviously their own you know intellectual property and all that um but also it's 
it kind of makes it easy for us to just go in and do our work. Um, and like I said, I auditioned for them once or twice before. So they, they know, they know who people are. And I have a feeling I would like to think anyways, that when I first auditioned, they were like, Hmm, she was pretty good. Let's think about her for later. Let's maybe come back. And uh, I'm so honored that they did. Like, it's just, it's really cool. Yeah. And when I got it, I didn't, I didn't actually, I couldn't believe it. I, I think <laughs> I, I had an out of body experience and I, I floated around somewhere and, and then it's like, you have the best news in the world and you can't tell anybody. Like, I was like, I don't, what do I do with this? Am I going to like blow up? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's kind of what happened. So you booked the gig, you're now in Star Trek, and at some point you've got to go get fitted for your outfit. So you get to wear a Starfleet uniform, and yours is very special because it's the white uniform. So uh, tell us about the uniform fitting, and how does it feel wearing that thing? I mean, I, I've heard from other people that it can be a little bit uh, tight sometimes. It's restrictive, and it's a skin-tight skin white onesie. Um, yeah, it's a little unforgiving. It's a little, it's a, like a hug. It's like a really long hug. And it's like, it's just letting you know <laughs> that it's there. <laughs> um, I actually like it because it, it, and also I'm a fan of like corsets and stuff. Like I did a show that the theater gig that featured corsets. And so there's something about that, about being like held in. And, and there is really something to the saying that the clothes makes the man or the person. Um, in that it changes you. And so when you put on that Starfleet uniform and you're like, <laughs> it's like, oh shit, I'm here. Like you're ready for action. And um, I do, I do appreciate it. The, the fittings, like, I mean, they, they're thorough and it's incredible. They measure every part, like real seamstresses and seamstresses, um, real tailors, like just, they, they measure and build everything. They're artists. Like, everyone in whatever department they are working at the top of their game. I've said this before and I'll say it again, working at the top of their game. And so they're meticulous. They measure it. They work long, crazy hours and they build everything. So that was a great process to just, you know, come in and see out of nothing, all of a sudden your full uniform appear. Um, but yeah, yeah, no, I definitely was very conscious about, okay, stay healthy, stay healthy, Raven. Don't go crazy now, the whole body image thing, but just just eat healthy and fit into that white onesie. As my brother would say, wait to exhale. I was just waiting to exhale <laughs> after each take. <laughs> and we should add to that by season three, they switched you into a skirt now. Uh, so was that better, worse, same? I love the skirt. I love the skirt. The skirt feels it like when that happened. Oh, my gosh. I was like a little girl all of a sudden because it it was a throwback from instantly. I was like, Oh, Uhura. Like I just felt like, yes, where's my little go-go boots at? Can I get my hair done too? Like I was just like, I love it. I, I, and Gersha, the costume designer, I mean, she's a mad genius as they say, she's just brilliant in her designs because uh, it stays true to the originals and yet it has the whole fresh infusion of where we're at today and it's just like it's a beautiful blending she she's so conscious and aware and using these materials as well uh that it's like being a sculptor a sculptor with, with material with fabric so um yeah i love for me i love the little white dress so cute and then i'm like this is an exclusive 
not everybody has one of these. <laughs> That's true. I think you're the only person who had that. Maybe there's like right? one other person, but I think it was just you. Uh-huh. <laughs> yep. Yep. Maybe feel well, good. I'm jealous. Ain't gonna lie. <laughs> <laughs> So your first episode was a little bit late into season one because essentially you are uh, replacing Culbrooks. He's off the network, whatever, or dead at that point. Um, and so your first appearance uh, chronologically in the show is Vaulting Ambition, and it's right after that happens. So basically your first scene, I, I'm assuming you filmed it chronologically, but your first scene is with a screaming Shazad Latif and Doug Jones as Saru and all that Kelpian makeup. That's got to be a heck of a way to get welcomed onto the show. It was so intense. First of all, I was geeking out because like you look down on the floor and you see the insignia and you're just like, oh my God. I'm I'm here in sick bay. Like I was just freaking out. I was freaking out. I'm not gonna lie. I I was trying to be present in my body, but I was freaking out. And um, and then so you practice a certain way at home, you know, like I practice my lines and what is what is it that I'm doing and all that stuff. You break down the beats. Like as an actor, you you're a little detective and you're combing through the scene and just you figure out what's the best way to support the script and move the story along. Anyways, when I got there though. With everything going on, the lights, because I can practice on my own and my lines and all that stuff. But then when you get there on set and you have these big lights and cameras are moving, big fancy expensive cameras are moving, capturing stuff. And then you have these incredible actors screaming on the table. It's loud. There's stuff going on. It was very discombobulating. It was, I was like, holy shit. And Dougie, Doug Jones is, everybody's wonderful. And Doug Jones holds a special place in my heart because he was like my guardian angel, especially those first few days, because I didn't know. And I just held on to him for dear life with the thing. And he was like, it's okay, because you didn't practice it like this in your, your room, did you? I was like, no, I did not know it would be like this. Um, and it was overwhelming. But gosh, everybody's such a team player that, yeah, after the initial shock of it wore off. Oh, I was welcomed. I was welcomed with open arms and just felt like part of the team. And yeah, yeah, just went at it. It was it was awesome. It was so awesome. Now, being that this is Discovery and it's mostly shot in Canada with a lot of Canadian performers, uh, did you know a lot of the folks that you were acting with, or had you worked with any of them previously? I have. I have worked with a lot of them um, before, and um, like on the Bridge Crew. So Ronnie Brown Jr. Um, he, I'd worked with on a play just before this all started before Star Trek started, we had done a play, um, and, um, and Oyen as well. I'd worked with before, like just our circles, you know, so that for me, it's been so rewarding to see how they have been using Canadian talent, you know, and you've had some on as well, like, uh, Conrad Coates. I know Conrad from way back, you know, extraordinary talent. And so to see the show really use them, because, I mean, sometimes, let's face it, American productions will come up to Canada, they get a tax incentive, a nice tax break, and they just have to say that they've auditioned people, but they don't necessarily use Canadians, and they'll bring their American people up. Also, I, I totally I understand, but we have the talent here. We have the resources use us as well to help tell your stories and you'll get remarkable work. And so I'm really proud of that. I'm so like, I'm like Star Trek and all, all the producers and everyone, they got it right. The casting department is incredible. They know the city, they know the talent that's here. And so I think they got it bang on. Right. And I love that they're using Canadians. I love that they're using Canadians. 
Now, in your first appearances in Disco, the personality of Dr. Pollard doesn't really get to shine through as much as it does in, like, Season 3, especially. Like, like I'm thinking of uh, the episode uh, Sukal, which is where uh, David Ajal walks in, and he takes grudge from Sinequa, oh, yeah. and he's all into grudge more than he's looking at Sinequa. And you're giving him such side-eye, like, that, that face right there. That's the face you're giving him, basically. That's the face that I get. That's Pollard's face, okay? It's almost... I want it to become her resting face, where she just gives side-eye, <laughs> and she's just like... She's like, you should not be doing this. You, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like, rest. Go get some rest, okay? <laughs> Where did this voice come from? Was this something that was kind of written into the show? Did they tell you to act like this? Or did you kind of discover your own Dr. Pollard along I, the way? I discover along the way, you know? Um, and it's it's that's the joy of um, having characters that grow, you know? Like, we see over the, the years, we're seeing you know, from season one to two, how the bridge crew is coming together, how the characters are just evolving. Like we see it. And so more and more of their personality comes out. So yes, for me, that was just a natural, that just kind of came out because it seemed to really fit. Um, also fun fact, side note, I had no, met David Ajala in Falling Water. So there was a show that was done here in Toronto some years before, not that long ago before. Um, and we didn't have any scenes together in that show, but we knew of each other. And uh, so, yeah, so there's already maybe a little bit of rapport built in so that I felt that way. And seeing him here and with the cat, with grudge and everything, it just naturally was the natural reaction to give uh, his character. So, yeah, yeah, really cool. It was a perfect reaction, too. I love that scene. Just, oh, my God, so much attitude, so much sass right there. <laughs> Body language, nailed it. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so were there any like real life inspirations that you brought for this character? Or I mean, do you know anybody in the medical field even that you pulled from to maybe say the medical lines a certain way? Or how did you end up finding this voice? Oh, my goodness. Um, I do a lot of studying as much as I can. Like, you know, because there are a lot of big words. Yes. <laughs> we call that techno babble in the industry. Techno babble. Um, and I'm like, I got to figure out a little bit of what's going on here. So, um. Uh, I, I do ask around, like, I mean, I do have some friends in the medical field, but really it's Google, like, you know, cause just to keep things really private. Cause then people are like, what are you asking about? And what for? I just do a lot of stuff Googling online. Cause I, I respect the integrity of the piece. Um, and yeah, I mean, let's face it. There's Star Trek has had such an incredible legacy with its doctors. You know, and they all bring something. And I, I, I feel like personally myself that I've watched over the years and maybe not overtly or consciously, but some of that has seeped in. Some of that has, has definitely seeped into me. So um, my sweetheart's going to, he's going to razz me on this because I always get, I always mispronounce his name, but the holographic doctor that I'm thinking of in particular. Um, Yeah, like, just sometimes the attitude and understanding that at the end of the day, doctors are people too. They're fallible. I was going to say we're fallible. (laughs) I feel like I've gone to med school. No, Um, doctors are people too. So that we have all the colors and emotions and feelings same way. And sometimes like you lack that bedside manner or sometimes you don't have the time to like be as caring or nurturing as you want to. And you need to get to the point in order to save someone's life or you disagree or what have you. So for me, it was really just allowing myself as an actor to um, just really 
tap into who who Tracy Pollard is as a being at the end of the day. Like, what does she stand for? And who are her friends? And what is her sense of music, humor? What is her favorite music? Like all just those types of things that make me go, okay, at, at the end of the day, she's a part of this family. And we know, they all know each other. They all know each other in such an intimate way that anything can come out. Like, and they'll, and they'll get it. They'll get it. And it adds for fun and humor and dynamics in telling a story. So. The legacy of Doctors in Star Trek is a pretty weighty one, too, because we're talking about Dr. McCoy, Dr. Crusher, yes. Dr. Pulaski. I love Crusher! Bashir, I mean, I can name everybody here. I'm not going to do that. But I mean, today now it's Dr. Culver and Dr. Pollard. So there's a lot of gravity on the Doctor in Star Trek. I mean, do you feel that pressure? Um, Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like it. Yeah, I can definitely tell right there. <laughs> I'd be lying if I said I didn't. But yeah, because it's such an honor to be in that line, that line, that legacy. Like, it's just like, I, I'm so happy. I'm so happy to be a part of it in any in any way great or small it's just uh yeah yeah and now it's gotten to a place where you know the nerves and everything have died down we've been doing this for a little while and and um yeah we're all just part of this like big team this big family unit and that's that's the best part about it what you see on screen is like directly from what's happening behind the scenes and the, and the camaraderie and the collaboration it's just, it's, it's awesome. It's really awesome. Now you've had the opportunity to do scenes with, as I mentioned, obviously Doug Jones, uh, Sonequa. We've also done stuff with Michelle Yeoh, who I love, and you got to do a great scene with Anthony Rapp and Wilson Cruz. So, I mean, a lot of great scenes here. I'll let you kind of make the, uh, make your choice here. Which scene would you have to tell us about that had uh, maybe a good story attached to it? Oh my. Um, you know, I'm gonna. I'm just gonna say the one with Dougie, just because, like I said, that and everybody's amazing. Michelle Yeoh, like I mean, <laughs> I don't know what else to say about that woman except she's extraordinary. Um, but I'm gonna go to Dougie because once again, it was one of the first couple of days that I was filming, and we were doing a walking, a walkie-talkie type of scene. And those scenes, they look really easy. You're walking from point A to point B. You just gotta walk and talk. We do it all the time as human beings, but for some reason doing it on camera, it's really tricky. Try it. It's really tricky. Um, and I, I had this word, adrenocorticotropic. And yeah, yeah. And there's actually four ways to pronounce it. And I memorized all four because I was like, I don't know which one they're gonna want. <laughs> but don't you know, Dougie was so impressed because we're walking and talking and I'm saying all these things. I thought about giving him the rundown as to how Tyler's doing, right? And um, never missed a beat and never missed a beat. And Dougie was just like, I can't believe this. And all the takes that we're doing of this, because you do, you do it more than once. <laughs> um, he was like, you were just on it and amazing. And how do you, and it was because he was such a great partner. He is such a great acting partner. That's there, you know, that's just right there with you in the scene. Um, uh, so yeah, so that for me was just rewarding because it was fun and it was tricky and we made it through together and he made me feel like a rock star. So there we go. Yeah, Doug is one of those dream interviews for me. I'm hoping one day I'll find a way to get him on the show. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. We'll, we'll keep talking to him. We'll, we'll keep 
Keep giving him a nudge. Yeah. <laughs> and I got to mention too, I mean, you were directed by many different talented people throughout all the different episodes you've been on, but I got to ask you, of course, about Two Take Frakes, Jonathan Frakes. What was it like being directed by Frakes? Love him! So, okay, so with the, um, when Michelle Yeoh's character is, you know, being ripped apart, um, you know, it's tricky doing those scenes where it's high, 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 high stakes. Like, you know, someone's dying. You know, blood pressure is going through the roof. Something's going to happen. But you can't, you, you, you can't freak out, freak out, but you are freaking out. And then also you're relaying what information is happening because you're a doctor and you're working to save the person. And it's a tricky thing to do. And two takes freaks. He's just so wonderful as a director because what he does is he, puts you at ease because you can feel kind of like, am I being too much? Is this too melodramatic? Like it can feel like you have, as they say, egg on your face. Like when you're like, Oh, what am I doing? And he was just like, there are no mistakes. He's like, we're all figuring out the camera, the camera, we're figuring it out too. He's like, you can't do it wrong. The cameras we're we're over here. You guys are there. Let's just go. Let's just keep trying. And it was so refreshing because it took all the pressure off. And then you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, we're, we're making a TV show. Okay. We're just, like, you know what I mean? Yes, it's like the best TV show in the world. But we're just making a TV show. Let's have fun. And, um, yeah, he he's so good at that. He's so good at uh, letting you be joyous and make mistakes and be goofy because that's where the, the gold comes from, from those mistakes, you know, like outtakes and whatnot. Sometimes you're like, oh, that's brilliant. Okay, let's keep it. You didn't plan for that, but you're in the moment. And you can't be in the moment if you're freaking out about like technical or where am I or how am I doing this? No. And he does what a director, you know, really should do in that he he guides you and he lets you know it's okay. I got you. And that's that's just like. And he does that in like two seconds. Like a lot of people sometimes have to work at creating that safety or that rapport. He does it. He says two words and you're like, oh, what do you want me to do? You want me to cluck like a chicken and jump on my leg? Okay, okay. Like you'll do it because it's like, you know that he's got your back, right? So, yeah. Discovery is a, a very inclusive show and it excels at showing a very diverse and realistic world, not just for the present, but of course for the future. Now, was there a moment for yourself when you're on set and you just realize that you're basically, you know, that, that kind of notion dawned on you that this is a show that's for everyone and showing everyone in the world, not just basically, you know, 10 white people on the bridge and then one token on the side. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I noticed that right away. And when I saw that, I was like, okay, okay, this is, this is definitely a new Star Trek in the same vein as to what Roddenberry would want. Like, I, I'm just like the legacy lives on in a greater way. So seeing the diversity, the cultural representation, um, seeing a lot more women, having a lot more women behind the camera directing, you know, Hannah Lee directing this. She did some episodes and then Picard and like the first episode of Picard, she did like, I was just like, hmm, this is great. We are seeing this um, people of color. Um, and incorporating, like, you know, all, I'm just, a part of me is like, yes, it took a while for us to get here, but we're here. 
And I'm very thankful for that. Um, I want to see more inclusions, um, people with all kinds of abilities or disabilities, as we sometimes call them. Um, I want to see more of that. Um, we already have seen some, um, obviously, but uh, I, I, I'm excited for those members, those actors in the acting community who uh, have whatever varying degree of disability being incorporated as well into into the show. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know if I answered that question as well, but uh, I, I think they got it right. I think they got it right and, and, and need to continue to move in that direction, absolutely. And I know some people complain and don't like change, and, um, but this is, this is the world that we live in where everyone needs to be represented on screen. And there is room for that. There's absolute room for that. And it makes it a better story. So I listened to your diversity in Star Trek panel from the Seventh Rules Virtual TrekCon, and you spoke about how many of your earlier roles were stereotypical characters. And, you know, that panel also had Sirach Lofton, you had Conrad Coates, we talked about, you had Michelle Hurd. And uh, I can tell you from doing this podcast with all sorts of other people of color, it's a shared experience across the board in Hollywood where they're getting stuck with these terrible stereotypical roles. And, you know, it's basically only really the last 10, 15 years where things have started to broaden and the definition of who can play a part has expanded. Yeah. So, you know, you hear a lot of the discovery pundits will say things like, quote unquote, go woke, go broke, or that they're <laughs> against the forced diversity, if you will. So, uh, you know, well, what do you say to folks like that, what's your response to that type of thinking? You know what? That's fear-based thinking. And I understand because people don't want things to change. If you, because they feel like something's being taken away from them. So if you're used to seeing your white self on the screen, and I'm just using white as an example, but if you're used to seeing that on the screen and now you feel like that's being taken away, you're going to retaliate for some people. Um, I feel like that's unfortunate because that's not necessary. That's not necessarily as well the way things are going to work. There's room for everyone at the table. There's always been room. Um, and the whole go woke, go broke. <laughs> I think I'm laughing at it because it's just, it's ridiculous. And once again, in talking about the kink, like we proved that it's very profitable, actually. Look at Black Panther and the box office hits that like, it's just like, uh, no. Um, it's just your fear and ignorance talking. And, and so I'm the type of person though, that I will not pay attention to what they are saying. Um, because there are some people that will just not be happy or content with anything um, other than the way things used to be and seeing it that way. And that's how they want it. Men should be the captain only, should be white. This is how it should be. Like, you know, like that's for some. Um, I just feel like that's so limiting. And I, I think that they are missing out on so much more. It can be such a, a greater ride. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's where I stand that so raven i've talked to a lot of folks who have been part of discovery and every single one of them has said that it is one of the best sets if not the best set they've ever worked on is that the same experience for you yes oh yes this is the thing like i said like people are meticulous and it's like whoever i don't know how it started i guess it's from the top down but whoever hires the people in the different departments it's like every department the people are working at the top of their game so the set builders and constructors, the painters, the carpenters, all that, you know, the cobblers that build the boots for your costume, the, the wardrobe, 
all the everything, like everyone, all the ADs, the PAs, the production, like they are all so, the, the only word that keeps coming through my mind is dedicated, just dedicated to their work that I show up and I'm like, oh, yo, you guys raised the bar. You raised it so high that I got I to gotta, I gotta get my, my high jump pole and just try and vault over it because it's just, it's, it's humbling, but it's, I go, oh, this is, this is why, this is why Star Trek is so good. Like, this is absolutely why. It's what goes into it, you know? The proof is in the pudding. Like, you're like, okay, it makes sense then. It makes sense that the sets look so real because they, they've really built them <laughs> to their best. Like, even the props. The props all work. They come by and explain how certain things work. I'm like, oh, my gosh. Of course, they collect them back at the end of the day. I can't, <laughs> can't take any souvenirs. But, yes, it is, I have to say, one of the best, if not the best sets. Um, because the way everyone works and how they acknowledge each other Everybody it takes time out to absolutely do that and, and give props to each other to say, job well done. I appreciate you. Um, great work. And I think that's all, that's very important. It's a very healthy work environment. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, not, that's not always the case in a lot of um, um, in sets. Um, they have gotten a whole bunch better than back in the day. Like I'd say when I first started out, oh yeah, you know, and then I can, I can understand why we have all these things coming out about, you know, harassment on sets and mistreatment and everything, because it's just the way it was for so long. Um, but no, Star Trek, these guys, they are dedicated. And I really, for me, what I do whenever I go on to another set, I carry that way of being with me. So I act like how I do. And I think it's also just who I am. I'm not going to brag too much, but um, I just carry with me and act in a way that um, I'm like, we are Starfleet. We, we, are, we are proud. We're different. We act right. We treat people right. And that's, that's everything. Great answer. So Raven, last thing for today here, and this is the big, big question now. What is the best thing about being a part of the Star Trek universe? The fans! <laughs> the fans are awesome. It's so cool. Um, just people reaching out, saying, hey, getting stopped on the street, you know. Um, I, I love it. I love that I'm a part of this legacy um, that goes beyond, right? Like, it's just, it's, I just feel like I, I repeat myself, but it's just like, it's a dream. It's, it's so awesome being a part of the Star Trek legacy and just being like, yeah. And in my life and in my career, I can look back at the end of the day and be like, I did that. <laughs> I was a part of that. <laughs> Very thankful. It's, it's so surreal, especially when I look back to that little kid who was cuddling up with her mom on the couch. It's just so surreal. It's awesome. That's wonderful. And and by the way, I'm sure eagle-eyed and eagle-eared listeners and watchers will notice that we didn't mention Discovery Season 4 once. And uh, here, I'll do it just because it's obligatory. Raven, what can you tell us about Season 4 of Discovery? Absolutely nothing. Say it again. Mm. Oh. So there's your answer, folks. So, Raven, again, thank you so much for chatting with us today. I really appreciate it. Uh, you know, it's been great to actually be able to chat with you because you are such an enigma online. Oh. And I'm happy to be able to kind of unravel a few of the mysteries of Raven. But there's still plenty more to find out. Well, there's a lot. Like, what's her real name? Seriously. 
<laughs> that's going to be for all. That's going to be for the autobiography that you write eventually, right? <laughs> it's like Mitzel Plick, and then I'll and then I'll, <laughs> I'll disappear or something, right? Yeah, no. Well, again, thank you so much for for sharing all these stories with us today, and I hope we get to do it again sometime because there's a whole big list of things we didn't get to. We didn't even talk about your black belt in Taekwondo. How could I not get to that? Even so, that's right. Uh, it sounds like we got to do a sequel at some point. And my archery and all that stuff. Oh yeah, and your jewelry man. business. So we're going to keep them for a future episode. Yeah, man. Not to be continued. To be continued. exactly. So, Raven, thank you so much again. Appreciate it, and uh, you know, live long and prosper, as they say. We'll see you in season four. You as well, love. Take care. And that was our chat with Raven Dowda, who is such a truly warm and awesome human being. We'll definitely be catching up with her again after the next major arc on Discovery to see what's new with her character and discuss some of the things that we left off in this episode. The first Doctor in Star Trek history was played by John Hoyt as Dr. Philip Boyce. We only saw him in the pilot of the original series The Cage with Jeffrey Hunter's Captain Pike. A native New Yorker, Hoyt's career started in the theater in the early 30s and he moved on to films in the mid-40s. Some of his notable roles in the silver screen and on television included Blackboard Jungle, Cleopatra, Spartacus, The Bridge, Petticoat Junction, The Twilight Zone, The Outer Limits, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, and maybe not so memorable, but certainly an oddity, Flesh Gordon. But uh, that's definitely a story for another day. As for Raven, we didn't get a chance to talk about it today, but as we alluded to, Raven is a Taekwondo practitioner and, in fact, is a black belt. After earning her first degree black belt, Raven got a tattoo on her right wrist to celebrate her achievement, which is conveniently covered up in Star Trek thanks to her long sleeves. Today, she holds a second degree rank in the martial arts style and has continued to improve her combat skills by spending some time in archery with the longbow and the recurve being her specialties. In other words, Raven Dowda can kill you from up close or from 20 meters away. So if you meet her at a convention, be nice to her. But lucky for you, she already is incredibly nice and amazingly upbeat with a contagious positivity that will definitely affect you and bring out the best in you. So good luck trying to be rude to her. But uh, seriously, don't try to be rude to her. Don't. She will end you. She will end you. That's it for this week's episode of Trek Untold. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Trek Untold, which is just one word in all those platforms. If you're listening to this on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or any of those other locations, please leave a positive review and a five-star rating if you can to help show other listeners how much you like this podcast and spread the word. If you're watching this on YouTube, please like the video, leave a comment, and subscribe to our channel at youtube.com slash nerdnewstoday. If you're enjoying Trek Untold and in a position to financially support the show, I hope you consider being one of our Patreon supporters by visiting patreon.com slash trekuntold, where you can help us out for as low as $2 a month and get some pretty sweet perks. Shout out once again to Triple Fiction Productions, who you can check out at triple-fictionproductions.net. If you're a collector of Star Trek toys in any size or scale or enjoy prop replicas, you're going to love the quality of their 3D printed products, and I'm sure you will be a repeat customer. Shout out to Cool Waters Productions for connecting me with this week's guest. If you'd like to see where they're going to be appearing next, visit inhouse-con.com for info on upcoming events where all the Star Trek folks that they represent will be showing up to. You can also purchase autographs and other signed items from their clients at coolwatersprods.com. If you have any comments, feedback, or suggestions for future guests, send an email to me at trekuntold at gmail.com. I hope you'll beam up again with us next week for another episode of Trek Untold. So until then, I'm Matthew. Thanks for listening. And remember, fortune favors the bold. Trek Untold is sponsored by treksphere.com. Promoting fan-produced Star Trek content in all forms is powered by the Rageworks Podcasting Network and is affiliated with Nerd News Today.